Okay, is this good? Does it sound good? So, I am happy to be here talking to you all, and I want to first say how much I've appreciated the talks that Wes and that Anne gave, and also the pieces of talks that Anna has given in our morning sitting. They've been so helpful to me. Uh, so, in my talk this afternoon, I want to offer some thoughts about my experience of the connection between my Dharma practice and my writing practice. So, every morning I vow to be grateful for the precious opportunity of human birth. And this practice of gratitude is something that I get from Dharma practice, and it's really been helpful to me. It gives me the sense that really what's, what's in my life is given, and being given, it is a gift. Sometimes everything doesn't seem like a gift, but in some sense, everything is a gift that comes. And, and the, also the awareness that this life itself is a gift, an amazing gift, in fact, and much of what Wes was telling us yesterday is reminding us of what an incredible, unlikely event this gift is, this life. The chances of us being born as humans are very small, and yet here is a collection of remarkable beings who happen to appear at the same time, in the same place, in the same room, on this earth. Here we are, in this room. How incredible. I think that there's a story about the, the chances of being born as a human being are something like if a tortoise, if a turtle, sea turtle, is swimming around for um, eons in a huge ocean and uh, comes up and sticks his nose above the water, um, and there's one tiny little ring an inch wide floating on the whole ocean. If he sticks his nose up through that ring, that's the chance of you being born a human. Except that it's even smaller than that. I forget exactly how it goes. But that's the idea. <laughs> so, um, it is a chance to be grateful. In the last ten years, I have seriously taken up the practice of photography, which is a different kind of art practice altogether. And one of the things I love about it is that it is wordless, and I get to have a vacation from words for a while when I'm doing it. But another thing about it that I love is that it really is, for me, a way to practice gratitude. And photography has been a real reminder to me of just the amazing gift of the visual world that's here, that the light lays itself down on everything without picking and choosing. It's just all there for the taking, and all I have to do is go out with my camera and put a frame around it and be grateful for what I see, and I don't even have to make anything. Of course, I do the seeing, and so I engage with it, but it, it feels like just 
a practice of saying thank you to go and take pictures. And um, it also makes me grateful, more specifically, it makes me grateful for my vision and my eyes. And um, my father went blind late in his life from detached retina in both eyes when he was about 60. And I also have had some difficulties with my vision, and I've had some strange visual symptoms. And in fact, a year ago, I did have a detached retina, which was fixed with laser surgery. It's completely fine. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And it made me think of my father a lot, because if that technology had been available to him, he might have been able to save some sight as well. Uh, But also before that, some years before that, I started having some strange visual symptoms and flashing lights and shadows and curtains and things. And some of them are gone and some of them aren't, but they're not a problem. But anyway, it was, I think it was probably not a coincidence that at about that time, I started taking a series of pictures of screens and nets and curtains. And I produced a little photography show that was at San Francisco Zen Center that was of, of greenhouse netting that was mended in funny ways and curtains hanging down obstructing a view of the ocean and um, window screens that were all sort of dirty and full of cobwebs and dead insects and things. And I was really enjoying exploring it and I discovered through those explorations that what appeared to be in the way was not in the way, and that what started out as the seeming like the obstacle was not the obstacle, it was actually the thing that I was celebrating, the thing whose beauty I was really celebrating. And this was really a wonderful metaphor for me, too, about our life. And Um, So often it is the case that what appears to be in the way is not in the way, and what appears to be the obstacle is not the obstacle, it's the thing itself. And we can often discover that as well in our writing or in other creative pursuits, uh, when you're working on, on something that seems difficult, it seems like a knot, and then it becomes something else. Another thing that I appreciate about Buddhist practice is the um, idea of curiosity. And Anna has been reminding us of the usefulness and the wonderfulness of curiosity. Just bringing that mind of mindful awareness and curiosity to ourselves and to what's going on. Writing can be really hard, and I, um, that's the art form I know the most about, and I know we get into a lot of struggles and we get tied up in a lot of knots. Um, and one of the reasons that I like to encourage people to go back to a kind of child's viewpoint in writing is because I think it helps us to get back to a kind of curiosity and to get back to a time when we really were able to kind of freely follow our imagination and follow our curiosity. 
makes me think of those the ability to follow our imagination fluidly that a child has um, is like what Anne was talking about with her popsicle sticks, and, and you know, she's discovered that she could do it with this magic tool. Um, so we have other things besides popsicle sticks that help us do it. We all have different versions of popsicle sticks, but, or did as young children, but we often lose that. And one of the things that we also really have is that curiosity, and it even turns out that curiosity is an inherent trait in newborns, and that human beings need curiosity. Curiosity is a, is a trait that is um, good for our survival. It's an evolutionary trait because human beings need to explore the world around them to figure out, to scope out the territory. And so toddlers are, and crawlers are crawling into all kinds of trouble because they're so curious, but they're just expressing this basic human trait that is really something wonderful that we can serve ourselves with and apply to our own situations later in life and bring some distance in a way to what we're going through by looking at it with curiosity. And we can, we can address, we can be curious about the big questions like, what the heck does it mean to be a human being anyway? That's what I'd like to know. So uh, I can investigate that question through my Buddhist practice, and I can investigate that question through my writing. Another thing I really love about Buddhist practice is the teaching that's very much emphasized in Zen that we are already perfect just as we are. We're already enlightened. And we may not know it, but even if we don't know it, we're already perfect, we're already enlightened. This is it, guys, you know, here we are. And what you see is what you get, and this is, this is perfect. Um, and this is a kind of teaching of non-dualism, really. Um, and Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, one of his more famous quotations is, as he was giving a Dharma talk to his students, was, you are all already perfect, exactly as you are, and you could use a little improvement. <laughs> so both those things are true at the same time. To say that you're perfect doesn't mean that you can't work on things and you know, improve things and remember to clean up after yourself and so on. Um, and that's exactly the, the nature of our life, that we have, we have that sort of absolute side, that limitless side, and we have this very um, specific bodily changing impermanent self here that's sitting in this room in these chairs on a hot, hot day, hot afternoon, and although it's nice and cool in here. So, and we're perfect. So, we're, we're all connected through this. We all have this Buddha nature, and we're all partaking of Buddha nature, and we're not alone because we're, we're all inhabiting the same Buddha nature. And this is very comforting to me. When I'm feeling lonesome, I think, well, I'm, I'm just in the big Buddha nature with everybody else. And really, all we need to do is step out of the way, get out of our own way, and just let our Buddha nature shine forth. Um, 
the Dogen, Ehe Dogen, was one of my favorite Zen writers and poets of the 13th century and a Zen master. And I'll read a short quote from him. Some of this, this may be familiar to some of you. He said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So we kind of come back full circle to where we began. When, when I forget the self, I transcend the small self that thinks it's separate, and I become one with the 10,000 things. And the 10,000 things are actually this bell and this clock and all of you and just everything that's around and the trees. And, and I'm enlightened by all of the rest of you and the rest of the world. And then the next step is that no trace of enlightenment remains. So you even go beyond that. And you're kind of back to where you started, sitting in the chair with no trace of enlightenment because you're not holding on to the enlightenment. And so it's all present at the same time. I'm sitting in this chair contemplating my small self and then I'm transcending it and then I'm back and I'm one with the 10,000 things and here I am back in the chair. And again, it's just a matter of letting that life and that Buddha nature flow through us and shine forth and try to let go of the clinging that's keeping the flow from happening. Uh, in a different vocabulary, an Appalachian hymn says, Thou art the potter, I am the clay. And I love that idea too, that we're just we're being formed by or taking the form of some life force that's coming through us. And we do take a very specific and temporary form. At the same time that we're perfect and we have Buddha nature, we're also you know, our own particular selves, and we need this particular bag of skin that we live in to keep our organs from spilling all over the floor, and we have to be manifest as separate bodies. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble, but it's also what's beautiful. The impermanence itself is what's beautiful. And we love what we love because it is impermanent. If everything stayed exactly as it was and never changed, then it wouldn't be that lovable after a while. You might get tired of it. And in, um, in Ikebana, Japanese flower arranging, I understand that it's particularly it's considered particularly beautiful to use flowers that wilt very quickly for the flower arrangements mm -hmm. because of the sense of impermanence and um, evanescence that's there. But the forms are, are worth paying attention to, and, and forms mean a lot of different things. In, in Zen practice, we have a lot of forms in our practice, and we have bells that we ring at certain times, and and do all these things, you put the different parts of the altar in certain places, and you learn how to do it, and you learn when to ring which bell, and all of that. And I actually appreciate these forms a lot, not because there's anything 
at all sacred about doing it one way rather than another way, but just because it gives me something to pay attention to and it gives me a way to wake up and be present and think, oh, this bell, yes, now, this bell, now. And so the forms are, are kind of containers for our life. And um, another, an example that I like is a, a haiku poem. It's a very specific form, specific number of syllables in each line. And uh, we looked at some this morning in our writing group, and uh, I'll read you one. This is an English translation, so the, um, the syllables aren't right, but that's too hard to do in English, I think. Anyway, this is by E.Q. Fleas, surely you too must find the night long. You too seem lonely. So I, I love that haiku. It's so... You know, it's such a specific form, it's so um, constrained, and yet who knew that this would be the way to write about somebody who's being bitten by fleas in the middle of the night, presumably, and is feeling compassion toward the very fleas that are biting him. You can go all sorts of directions, even within these forms. And in our writing sessions, I've been offering forms also just as kind of containers or jumping off places or something to push off against for the same reason that they can be containers for whatever it is that we want to pour forth from ourselves. So, so sometimes, for example, we've had write with only words of one syllable or write uh, a list poem with each line beginning with the words, I come from. So these are, these are forms and they're specific, but they give you some place to start or some, something to begin with. And then you can go somewhere with it and change it later. But form is our friend, I think. And we, we better like form because that's what we're in. We have form, so we need to, to live with the form that we're given in this life. Mindfulness practice has also helped me uh, to, be, to become an observer and to get some distance on myself. And you know, there, may not be, there may not be a self, or there may not be a fixed self, but there's some consciousness that's noticing and looking at what's going on. And this observer does help me step back a little, and it can help me step back when I'm in trouble emotionally, when I'm upset, or it can also help me step back when I'm wanting to be creative. So the observer is... is or that observing mind, that mindfulness, really, is something that I've appreciated about Buddhist practice. Uh, we looked at something this morning, but I'll share it with the rest of you, too. Uh, I'll just give you a short piece of this, um, which kind of addresses this idea of, of an observer. And this is by Jorge Luis Borges, and it's a little piece called Borges and I. The other one, the one called Borges, is the one things happen to. I walk through the streets of Buenos Aires and stop for a moment, perhaps mechanically now, to look at the arch of an entrance hall and the grillwork on the gate. I know of Borges from the mail and see his name on a list of professors or in a biographical dictionary. 
I like hourglasses, maps, 18th century typography, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Stevenson. He shares these preferences, but in a vain way that turns them into the attributes of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that ours is a hostile relationship. I live, let myself go on living, so that Borges may contrive his literature, and this literature justifies me. It is now effort for me to confess that he has achieved some valid pages, but those pages cannot save me, perhaps because what is good belongs to no one, not even to him, but rather to the language and to tradition. Besides, I am destined to perish definitively, and only some instant of myself can survive in him. Little by little, I am giving over everything to him, though I am quite aware of his perverse custom of falsifying and magnifying things. I do not know which of us has written this page. <laughs> I've worked a lot as an editor, and I edited the magazine of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for many years, Turning Wheel, and I've edited books for people. And what I really like most about editing is the experience of encouraging a voice to come forward, a voice that has a story to tell, but maybe the teller doesn't have the confidence to tell it, and to just be kind of like a midwife, to say, yeah, yeah, you can do it. And, and it's very satisfying to help something come forth that a person has to tell, and to, to feel that I can offer some encouragement. And I've really, I've really enjoyed that a lot. Um, a couple of examples. I, I mentioned in the writing group, but I wanted to tell you all about one man I worked with for a couple of years is a man who's a prisoner on San Quentin's death row, and he wrote a really amazing memoir about the first 19 years of his life before he went to San Quentin, and that was, well, he, he's now 47. And the book that he wrote has just been published by Harper San Francisco in a large edition. Barnes & Noble is specializing it, putting it on their tables, and, and day before yesterday was the publication date. And it's called, you can look for it, but in, the book's called That Bird Has My Wings, and the author is Jarvis J. Masters, and it has a foreword by Pema Chodron. But that was a, a great privilege to be able to work with Jarvis and become friends with him, and help him do what he, he did it himself. It was his book, his writing, his words, his life. And I was just able to facilitate that and had the good fortune to do that. And it felt like I could make an offering that was useful. And when I was editor of Turning Wheel, that would sometimes happen too with writers. We, we had a, something we started called the Young Writers Award. And in each issue, we would give an award to a young writer who had not been published before, who had a story to tell about some personal experience with socially engaged Buddhism. And that was very satisfying to be encouraging these new voices coming forth. And this past summer, I, a booklet came out that I worked on, which was a lot of fun also. It was a book that I did with Sojin Mel Weitzman, who's the uh, abbot of Berkeley Zen Center, and he was my first teacher 35 years ago. And he has been teaching and offering his teachings and his example to many people for many years, but he doesn't have anything published. And he's not really a writer, he's a wonderful teacher, but he 
but in the last year or so, he and I met a number of times, and, and I did interviews with him, and then I took the interviews and took myself out of it and just edited them down into his life story, and it was published in a small booklet this past summer on the occasion of his 80th birthday celebration. So that was a wonderful opportunity also to work with somebody I respect and love and admire and help him have his story come out. And the reason that I'm telling you about this is that what I'm trying to do now and what I suggest we all do is to bring that same mind and that same encouraging midwife person to myself when I'm writing and that I can also um, just stand next to myself and hold my hand and say, you can do it. And uh, it's kind of as if I'm channeling Susan Moon or something. I'll just, I don't know, like, like Borges, I'll just stand here and channel Susan Moon and tell her she can do it and encourage her and be compassionate with her. And, um, and we can all do that for ourselves. We can all treat ourselves that way because we all deserve that kind of compassion and that kind of love. And we all have stories that want to be told and we all need to be encouraged. And um, there's no reason that you can't be the person to encourage yourself as long, along with other people too. So I want to tell you a little bit about my last writing project, which is the book that I just finished. And I was working on it for about two years, and I sent it off to the publisher on September 1st, which was my deadline. I'm the kind of person who's really helped by deadlines. <laughs> and in fact, that's, I think that's a perfectly legitimate tool that some of us need and can make good use of, and, and I encourage people to find these structures outside of themselves if they do help, writing groups, writing classes, writing partners, writing dates in a cafe, as well as deadlines for something that you want to write. Of course, deadlines can also be very oppressive when it turns out you didn't really want to write it after all and you still have a deadline or whatever, but anyway, I did have a deadline on September 1st, and I <coughs> met it, and I was proud of myself for that. Um, and so the book is about aging, and for, for a few years now, I've noticed that this seems to be something that's happening to me, <laughs> and I thought I would explore it by writing about it. And in our culture, as we know, aging is not encouraged. <laughs> um, it's, it's really not cool, but the Dharma is encouraging me to look at what's difficult, and to bring forth some curiosity. Oh, okay, what's it like to get older? What's it like to be in an impermanent body? And even if we're young, we're still aging, so everybody's doing it somewhere along the line. Um, and it's part of the question of what does it mean to be a human being? And impermanence is part of what it means to be a human being, and aging really brings up impermanence. Um, time is passing, and it's signing itself across our bodies as it goes. And so, yeah, impermanence is one of the three marks of existence. Impermanence, suffering or dissatisfaction, and no fixed self. So um, this was a good exploration. I thought I'd take it on. And I wanted to look at 
what's difficult and also what the benefits might be. And as I was saying about the photography project, at looking at the nets, you know, I suspected perhaps what looked like obstacles might turn out not to be just purely obstacles. And in fact, that happened to some extent in the work. And I'm 66, I'm still in good health, and basically I'm still kind of a baby at getting old. I, people are struggling with a lot more frailty and infirm infirmity and losses than I am. But I thought this would be a good time to start looking at it, getting ready, finding a relationship with these things, and bringing my Buddha mind to bear in the situation while it's still somewhat functional. And I, I wrote about happy things like being a grandmother and having friends that I've had for, I have, so, I have two friends who I've known since I was three years old. So that's a long time at 66. And that's one of the great benefits of aging. You can't have a friend for 63 years if you're a young person in your 20s. And I'm telling you, it's a great joy. So, but I'm also, I also took up unpleasant things like forgetting where I parked the car and how my arthritis in my knees, which brings me up to the chair from the floor, also keeps me from going backpacking, which I used to love to do. And I wrote about scary things like being a single woman, getting older and older, and still being a single woman, getting older, and what does that mean to me? And there's some scariness there sometimes. And I wrote about how time is passing so fast, it seems to go faster and faster and faster. And then I, I discovered, really, in the work, I discovered some equanimity and some joy that I didn't expect to discover that I think came from these real invest, deep investigations. And I discovered some courage and almost fearlessness about some of these things, that finding some other sides to them. So uh, the writing helped me feel connected, and I think that is one of the the things that our creative efforts can do for us. We can connect ourselves to the whole rest of the world, and particularly the human world, um, through our artistic expression. And it helps us not to feel alone and isolated, that we're engaged in some act of offering something, actually. So I thought I would end my talk with reading you uh, one of the sh very short essays in my book. And it's called This Vast Life. Every morning, I vow to be grateful for the precious gift of human birth. It's a big gift, and it includes a lot of stuff I never particularly wanted for my birthday. Some of the things in the package I wish I could exchange for a different size or color, but I wanted to find out what it means to be a human being. My curiosity remains intense even as I get older. So I say thanks for the whole thing. It's all of a piece. In 13th century Japan, Zen master Dogen, one of my favorite Zen masters, wrote, the way is basically perfect and all-pervading. So I'm already in it. We're all in it. We are made of it. When my granddaughter was just over two, I visited her and her parents in Texas. She doesn't have a lot of ideas yet about how things are supposed to be or what's supposed to happen next. She's glad to be alive. I was babysitting for her for one afternoon, and it was part of my job to get her up from her nap. I was reading in the next room, and I knew when she woke up because I heard her chatting away to her bear. I lifted her and her bear out of her crib, and we went downstairs. 
While I fixed her a snack of crackers and cheese, she danced around a purple ball that was in, lying in the middle of the living room, singing an old nursery rhyme that she had learned in her preschool. Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And then she sat down on the floor, kerplunk, laughing. She was fully present, fully joyful. Actually, the song she was singing is a very old chant about the plague, and the last line about the ashes refers to our mortality, but she wasn't worrying about that. In his poetic essay, The Genjo Koan, Master Dogen wrote, A fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there is no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there is no end to the air. The fish and the bird have never left their elements. When their activity is large, their field is large. When their need is small, their field is small. Thus, each of them totally covers its full range, and each of them totally experiences its realm. When I get unhappy about something in my life, I think, wait, no, this isn't the right life. It isn't what I want. I need to find the edge of this life and leap over the fence into a different life. But that's not how it works. My life is vast. I can't find the edge of it just like a fish in the ocean or a bird in the sky. A fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there is no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there is no end to the air. There's no getting out of this life, this ocean, this sky, except, except by dying. If I try to change oceans, I'll never find my way or my place. There's no place else to be but here in the big mystery of it. It happened that only a few days after visiting my granddaughter, I visited an old friend in his 80s who lives in assisted living. He's a Catholic priest and monk who has dedicated his life to solitude and spiritual study. He's well-read in, in multiple spiritual traditions, including Zen, and he is an important mentor to me. For many years, he has been leading me in an ongoing conversation about prayer, mysticism, and spiritual inquiry through correspondence as well as face-to-face -face visits. He's not well physically. He's weak, on oxygen, and confined to a wheelchair, but his mind is fine. He told me, if I've died before, I don't remember it, but I recognize what's happening. That's where I'm going. Years ago, he had a beautiful pine coffin built for himself by a carpenter he knows. It stands upright in his apartment like a roommate, a reminder, keeping him company. He sits at his table and looks out the window at a pear tree and watches its leaves turn and fall and bud again. He watches the seasons, the whole universe in that pear tree. He reads, he prays, he receives an occasional visitor. Like my granddaughter, he is completely present in his life. Like Dogen's fish, he is swimming around in his ocean and there is no end to the water, even in his tiny apartment. Moments after I entered his room, he was talking to me about Isaac of Nineveh, the 8th century Syrian hermit whose writings he had been reading when I came in. Like my granddaughter, he too is singing his version of Ring Around the Rosies, dancing until he falls down and turns to ashes. In between that toddler and that old man is a span of over 80 years when we tie ourselves up in so many knots, agonizing, agonizing over the things we don't have that we want and the things we have that we don't want. We run around trying to fix things, in our personal lives, and in the life of the planet. It's actually our responsibility to fix things in both those places. We need to fix the plumbing, for example. The toddler and the old man aren't fixing the plumbing, but they need, they need us to take care of them.
But we need them too to remind us that everything is already taken care of. I like to think about how we are completely held by the atmosphere in a literal way. The air that surrounds each of our bodies, that flows in and out of our lungs, is not nothing. It's thick with molecules, and it fills up all the gaps and cracks between us and the other bodies and objects around us. The furniture, the walls of the room, the trees outside, the buildings. There's no empty space. The air is fluid, making room for us, so that each of us inhabits a nook that is exactly our size and shape. The air kindly moves with us when we move. It's like those soft rocks you can find on the beaches of Northern California that have tiny mollusks living inside them in the holes they made for themselves. We're all connected molecule to molecule. I'm held by everything that's not me. The last meditation retreat I attended was beside the ocean, and while I was sitting, I listened to the surf. The surf is the sound of the ocean breathing. It's never still. Sometimes the sea is so loud and crashing that I crave a little silence, and so I listen for the silence between the waves. But just as one wave recedes from the shore, flowing back down the sand into the ocean, getting quieter and quieter, just before it gets silent, the next wave always breaks. The ocean never stops breathing because it's alive. As I sit on my seat in the zendo, following my breathing, I follow the breathing of the ocean, too, and I begin to breathe in rhythm with the ocean. The sound of the ocean is the sound of time passing, the sound of one moment giving way to the next. Each wave, each moment, is a gate that I pass through into the next moment. And even if you're not sitting by the ocean, one wave of your life is still followed immediately by the next, with no completely quiet place in between. I love the vow, Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. I keep giving myself away to the next moment, and the next moment receives me. I just have to step through. So, thank you. I'll give you a last bell for, for Zen. <laughs> <laughs>